Ever hear that ridiculous line that you'd never want to meet your heroes? Well, that's total garbage. Meeting your heroes is freaking cool. I've been trying to schedule an interview with one of my biggest heroes, Andy Partridge from XTC, from as long as I've been trying to do this podcast, which isn't a real long time, but we have scheduled, canceled, and rescheduled this interview at least six different times. Between technical malfunctions, scheduling conflicts, and Andy getting sick with COVID-19, it's been a little back and forth. And under normal circumstances, I might have given up trying, but I made no secret that XTC is my all-time favorite band, which is all the more reason to never give up on your dreams. And despite a career filled with potholes, hiccups, calamities, and upheaval, I put Andy Partridge on the same pedestal with some of the greatest songwriters of the 20th century. I know that's a strong statement, but I don't care. This is my podcast, and Andy Partridge is a genius. And after months of trying to get him, I am delighted to finally say today's guest is Andy Partridge from XTC on Baxi's Musical Podcast. What is it? What is it? It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. So let me give you a little heads up. I'm going to fanboy the crap out of this interview. But before I do, allow me to establish a little background. In 1975, Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding formed a band with Barry Andrews and Terry Chambers called Star Park. They then called themselves the Helium Kids. And then when things started to get really good, they renamed the band XTC. They released two albums with that lineup, White Music and Go To. And while Andy was the principal songwriter in the band, their first hit record was called Making Plans for Nigel which was written by Colin Moulding for their third album, Drums and Wires, which also featured Dave Gregory on guitar. A few more albums came out. Each one was more fantastic than the other. They toured relentlessly until 1982, when Andy had a nervous breakdown on stage while simultaneously fighting the effects of withdrawal from a 12-year-long addiction to Valium, where he quit cold turkey. From there, XTC stopped touring and became an exclusively focused studio band, and Andy has stayed off the road ever since. However, like Brian Wilson before him, some of the greatest, most complicated songs of his career were written the moment he stopped playing live. From the album Skylarking, which included the notorious rift between him and producer Todd Rundgren, to a lengthy strike against Virgin Records, to the amazing comeback record of Apple Venus, which was released 20 years ago this year. Andy Partridge is one of music's most colorful characters and one of its most unsung heroes. This is Andy Partridge on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, is that Mike? <laughs> Thank God I finally got you on the phone. <laughs> uh, I, I don't exist. I'm like a, a, a little whiff of smoke, really. I, you know, uh, yeah, you've you've tied me down. No, I wasn't avoiding you. It was just circumstances were going awry, you know. Well, I mean, we we had this uh, interview booked and then canceled and then rebooked because of technical issues, and and then and then you got sick. So I'm I'm very grateful that you took the time to uh, to to talk today. So thank you very much. Hey, well, it's no problem. It's no problem. I uh, I hope it's you're going to have some interesting questions because I, I a little while back I just I did an extremely dull interview with quite a famous music magazine. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I, oh I, boy, I read that interview, and yeah, first of all, it's it's you, so you don't necessarily do a boring interview, but the boring questions can can certainly be out there, but. But I yeah, want... see, I like follow-ups. You tell, you know, they say, hey, how did you write this song? And then, I don't know, whatever answer you give it, oh, I wrote it on the back of the only dragon that's left alive in Wiltshire. <laughs> and then there's silence, and then they say, okay, next question. <laughs> you know, there's no follow-up. What do you mean there are dragons in Wiltshire? How do you write on the back of a dragon? You know, there's... So I, I like interesting questions. Let's... Let's talk about everything in the world bar music today. Wonderful. Well, I want to start off because uh, you know, obviously, you know, us in the states are certainly going through uh, the pandemic, and I, and I know you had the coronavirus. How how are you feeling? How did you recover? Um, I think I did have the coronavirus. I never got tested, but then who did? You know, Britain is so willfully unprepared for everything. Oh, we're at war with the Nazis? Oh, I suppose we ought to... Uh, do you think we should do something about it? Oh, I don't know. Let's have another tea and a biscuit. <laughs> you know, it's... it's. 
we are the make-do-and-muddle-through nation. We just cannot get anything together. It's 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 in the English genes to not care about anything. And, you know, oh, that won't... What, there's a pandemic? Well, it's not going to come to Britain. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to catch it. You know, when I go out now, when I go out every few days around a, a store to get some groceries, I'll probably be the only one in that big supermarket with a mask on. Really? Yeah. Because they just, they just have this attitude where they think, oh, I'm British, I'm not going to catch anything. I wasn't going to start a fight with him because I think he had a facial tattoo, and it's like one of life's laws. Never start an, an <laughs> argument with somebody with a tattooed face. Um, but I could hear him talking about me. He stood about 12 foot away or something. Look at him with a mask on. Look at him. What does he think he's doing? He, he looks stupid, doesn't he? Gee, he thinks he's, that's going to stop him catching it, doesn't he? And I thought to myself, yeah, I'll come and stand at the foot of your bed and mock you mercilessly when you're dying. <laughs> and then you'll take that you'll take that information and talk about it through international phone calls. Yeah, well, like, uh, yeah, I think I did have uh, coronavirus, and uh, it. I, I thought initially it was just a just a flu, you know. Yeah. But it turned out to be the meanest, nastiest mother of a flu, with weird other symptoms like intense headaches and. Uh, uh, diarrhea, uh, loss of appetite, you know, weird stuff that you don't get with a flu. You have a flu, you have it for a week, and then you're up and about, and everything's fine. I was in bed for like five weeks, and I, at the end of that, I was getting out of bed, and I had zero energy or zero wow. go. So, yeah, I, I think I've been there. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're better, because uh, selfishly, <laughs> I would hate to have thought that you would have died from a disease without completing this phone call. Really. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we sort of We've joined the circle up here to some extent. Right. Before I really get into the, the questions I, I, I've been putting together for the last several months, I want to share a little story with you. I'm, I'm the, the father of three daughters, I, uh, a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, and, and a 16-year-old. And when, when they were babies, okay. babies. And, and they would do what babies do. You know, they cry, they get upset, and they're, they're looking for attention. They're, they're, they're communicating with their tears. I would go into their their room. I would grab them out of their uh, out of their cribs, and I would sing two songs, uh, two different songs. One was uh, "Here, There, and Everywhere" by the Beatles, and the mm-hmm. other, and the other one is a song that you wouldn't necessarily think was would lend itself to a lullaby, but it did, and that was "Earn Enough for Us" by XTC. And my kids. That is a really weird choice. I I don't know why because it's you know it's about fatherhood and 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 you know having a family and you're worrying whether or not you can afford to do this and give the kids you know, everything that you want in life. But yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I've heard people say they've sung. Uh, to their young kids, they sung the song "Everything Will Be All Right." Well, that, that would do too. But uh, you know, but that song for me, it it meant something to me personally. And then to do it to mm-hmm. my kids, and then now as my kids have gotten older, and and, and you know they have embraced your music from you know, everything from from white music onto drums and wires to. Wow, you got them hardcore now. They even they even know a bunch of songs from the uh, from the, the Fuzzy Warbles uh, collection. So my kids have actually oh. embraced everything. They've shared it with your friends. So bottom line, the Andy Partridge canon of work continues through the generations uh, here in the states. It's like Fahrenheit four five one, where people learn the books and they are living books and they can tell the books to each other so we've got some living xtc tracks you absolutely do so on behalf of uh, my kids and myself uh, thank you because those because that song alone put them to sleep many many times ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it has that effect on audiences too. <laughs> i uh, i watched uh, the documentary again uh, this is pop uh, a few weeks ago and, oh Jesus! I had to lose a little weight after that. Whoa! I saw myself on that, and I thought, "Man, what a fatberg!" <laughs> you know, I, I was uh, yeah. I, and and I tell you what made me lose weight: getting that virus. That I was bet. excellent for weight loss. But <laughs> so you saw it again? I saw it. I saw it again. And the, the thing that that I find well, there's a couple things I find really interesting. One was the fact that you. You come right out the gates saying you know, you hate documentaries or, or rock documentaries, but the fact of the yeah, matter I is, do. I, I think the vast majority I've seen all have the same trajectory. They all have the same fault, 
shots and and the same uh, it's like you're seeing the same film over and over and over again just with different actors playing the role but there are very few bands that have the same kind of story that XTC had and 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 I, and I wonder like having seen the thing completed do you feel better about that documentary and the way they portrayed your story well I- I know that the fellow who made it, Charlie Thomas, is a fan. And I said, look, I, you know, because I, I, to be honest, I, I would get requests about twice a year to be part of a documentary about XTC. And then, you know, you'd see the synopsis of it and you'd think, nah. or you'd see the other stuff a certain director had made and you think, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, nothing, nothing too interesting here. And um, he he uh, got a hold of me, and and we we talked, and I said, look, the only way I'd agree to you doing it is if we don't do it like every other one I've seen, um, you know. And to some extent, I think he did a pretty good job. I'm not going to say it's the best documentary I've ever seen, but I'm I will say he did a pretty good job, given that I was reluctant to be dragged down the same alleyway as every other every other band. Right. Um, I mean, who knows? Somebody else might come along and make one that is even better. But in, in, a, in a field of one, he did a great job. You know, we've only got that one to compare. The only the thing that I, I, I wished I heard more of in that story was, uh, was about the, the strike that the band took against uh, you know, Virgin Records. I kind of wanted to hear more about what that was all about and, and what you did in between all that time, it was a 10-year-long strike between you and the record company. Uh, well, no, it wasn't that long. It was approximately, uh, let me see, 92, 97, 90. It was, it was five and a bit, nearly six years. Uh, and it, it wasn't my idea. It was Dave's idea. I think he said it kind of facetiously. Well, I'll do my Dave impression. Well, Patsy, if you're not... Uh, <laughs> If, if you um, if you're really not that happy, I, uh, and I'm not either, I think we should um, let's go on strike. That's what everyone else does, and not happy with their work. And uh, I thought, is he joking? That is a fantastic idea. And uh, I, I said, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's go on. Let's put down guitars, down pens, down notebooks. We're not gonna we're not gonna record any more music for Virgin. And because um, I think the the last straw for me, it was only a straw, but it did break the camel's back. Was when they they killed the, um, the Wrapped in Grey single. Yeah. They had something like five hundred pressed up, which is you know that's nothing, especially if it's if it became a hit, you know. And I I planned a video out the the only literally the only video I was allowed to plan out because all of the others were. When I tried to plan the videos out for any singles with Virgin, um, they would say, "No, we don't like that idea. You're going to do what what this video maker we've found for you has. You know, you're going to obey them." And I, consequently, I didn't like any of our videos. But um, we we had a video uh, storyboarded for Wrapped in Grey, and uh, and Virgin literally no promotion just killed it and i thought that's it last straw and um yeah we we went on strike and during that time we would not go near a recording studio if we did we didn't let virgin know but um you know i was writing and recording home demos colin was writing recording home demos and uh dave was sort of keeping his hand in playing in a few local bands or um I think he was he was doing a job with a, a car rental firm to make some money, you know, collecting cars. As big of a fan as I am, I, I have to be honest, I, I didn't like most of your videos either. <laughs> oh, I hated them. Yeah. There was one particular employee, uh, she will remain nameless, employee of Virgin Records in England that had total godlike power. Uh, over all of our videos, um, I would I would bring in ideas. I would go for meetings at Virgin Records, and I would have sketched out ideas, and um, 
you know, and I would sit with her and explain what we wanted to do. And she just would say, nope, nope, don't like it. Nope, nope, don't like that. Nope. And the ideas that she would bin annoyed the shit out of me because I'd see other people months or years down the line doing those same ideas for videos and getting awards for them. And and she yep. wouldn't let me exercise any of these ideas. And uh, and so I kind of mentally gave up. And to some extent, or to a large extent, music's about music. It's not about vision. It's about the visions you get in your head. But since you're fighting you know, visions of, of other people who are considering themselves to be creative, interpreting, you know, your art, you know, between the videos and, and the decision, you know, to, to shelve wrapped in gray, you know, I, I, were you ever given reasons as to why they just made those decisions? No, they, they would pick the singles always. Uh, sometimes they would pick a single before an album was even made. Uh, which was the case uh, with Making Plans for Nigel and uh, the Drums and Wires album. They said, well, just from the demos, so that one is the single. And uh, in in the, the short time that we had to make that album, um, I think we spent a week making Making Plans for Nigel and literally a week making the rest of the album. Um, so they would they would lean on a certain track and say that one is going to be the single, and when making plans for Nigel was a hit, um, I can be totally honest about this. I was really upset because I, I was writing what I considered to be better and better material, but they would not regard it. It was all okay. So oh, well, yeah, we got your demos, Andy. Um, uh, yeah, we got we got Collins demos too. There's your single. There's your singles. And it was like um, because he'd written Making Plans for Nigel, which was a, a semi hit in England, got in the top twenty. They assumed that anything that Colin wrote was because he was the better looking one. You know, looked like a cross between Rudolf Nureyev and Chrissy Hind, <laughs> and I looked like some some crazy goofball nerd scientist in glasses. Um, it was like, well, Andy's the crazy goofball, and he writes the weird stuff, and Colin's the good-looking one, who, obviously, he writes the hits. So for many years after making plans for Nigel, they they found it difficult to focus on anything I'd written. Uh, and I became very, very annoyed by this. Um, I didn't want to be annoyed at Colin, but I knew that, you know, I could write 30 new songs for an album. Colin could write four, and they'd pick two of his four as, as the singles. So, yeah, that that was difficult to take. One of the things sure, that I no, found... Sure, you go anywhere. I like to wander. Okay, well, one of the things that I found really fascinating uh, was the entire uh, discussion about synesthesia. You know, I, I'd seen, uh, you know, interviews with like Brian Wilson, who has, you know, very much the same thing or some other people that I've, that I've interviewed over the years who, you know, will categorize things with, with colors or whatever it may be. But the, the explanation you gave to it and then to see it in practice was, I mean, I, I mean, I've never seen it done that way. And I, and I thought it was, I thought it was fascinating to, to watch someone who, who has it being able to interpret it and also, you know, vocalize how it's all coming, how it's all coming. Yeah, at that you. was, that was 100% truthful. I hadn't prepared anything before and I threw my hands genuinely on a chord I'd never found before. But then I do that a lot because I don't really know the names of most of the chords I play on the guitar. Uh, and, and probably none of them I'm playing on a keyboard because I'm so primitive with that. But uh, that was a genuine experiment to, to show the filmmakers that that's how I write songs. The majority of the songs come from a, sometimes just one chord that will summon up an idea, usually two or three chords, and the rhythm they're played in will supply the lyric, because what you have to do, I mean, for example, a song like Scarecrow People on Oranges and Lemons. In fact, I'll tell you what, there is a guitar in here. Hold it. I'll, um, sure. I'll, I'll kind of show you what I'm talking about. 
I, again, I blundered on this chord. And I'd never played that chord before. I still can't tell you what that chord is. But I took my finger off of the root note and, and sort of alternated it. So I had the on the bottom. Right. And that chord on the top. Then I took my finger off the root note. So I had a different root note. So I... And I thought the rhythm of it, the, the, the alternating root note and the rhythm of it sounded like a horse trotting along. Right. And the chord itself sounded quite spacious and open. It didn't sound closed. And how you for how I find songs often is to describe to myself what I'm hearing. So I've got a horse and it's in a big open space. And, oh, this is a big agricultural space. Uh, and um, suddenly you're pulling things from your subconscious about agricultural spaces. You're pulling scarecrows as, like, quasi-people. Um, and, and you're pulling modern agricultural practices, which are pretty damn poisonous. Um, and, and, you know, I find myself... The chords and the and the movement that boom damn boom damn boom that totally gave me that song, and, but that's not unusual. Most of my songs come in that way. I find a chord or two chords, and um, I'm telling myself what it's making me think think of, and I find myself telling myself the lyric. That's amazing. I, you know, for, for and, and that's a that's a, one of the questions I want to ask you about it because at at what point in your life. Do you discover that this is something that is unique to you and is a gift that most people, including most songwriters, just simply don't have? How did you come about the understanding that this is maybe not quote-unquote normal? Um, I have no idea because I, I was not taught music. I never took any music lessons in every way, in any way. Um, uh, and I, I, as I say, I don't know the names of most of the chords I play on the guitar. Um, and so I, I can't read music, so I have to do it all intuitively, and sound for me makes a picture. When I hear other sounds on other people's records, they make a picture, and sometimes I find the the lyric that they're singing is argumentative with the sound they're making. Um Oh, how to describe this? It's very difficult. It's like saying, have you ever smelled the color blue? Um, <laughs> I, I guess I've got some funny wiring in my brain, which I can see. Um, there, there was a, a famous land speed record winning car called the Bluebird. Okay. And as a kid, I used to look at pictures of Bluebird. And most of the pictures were black and white photographs, and I don't know whether it was the name Bluebird, but I used to see this Bluebird in a turquoise shade, even in a, a line, a black and white line drawing or a black and white photograph. I'd see it as a, as a, the shape of it made a kind of turquoise color in my brain. And then uh, certain chords, especially A6, the chord A6, which is this one. Um, that, to me, A6, is turquoise. So that chord is also uh, the Bluebird race car. Hmm. Uh, it's faulty wiring. I, I, I cannot separate things. I cannot separate... Uh, you see, I was a very slow reader at school, and I didn't read. Mm -hmm. They were worried about me. Oh, bright kid, he, but he, he can't read. He panics or has he struggles with massive print. I used to love pictures because I got everything out of the pictures. I got sounds out of the pictures. I got smells. I got all of the sensory information out of pictures. Yeah, you, you... Uh, and so I guess I'm just wired wrong. It sounds like, though, that from the very beginning of your childhood, you were uh, you're very artistically curious about 
you know, I mean, I've read interviews with you about about art and about drawing and you know, about the environment in which you grew up with, you know, your mom and and, you know, the issues that 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 she had. It didn't mm-hmm. sound, in spite of all of that, it didn't sound like it was a necessarily encouraging environment for you to kind of tap into some no, of that. The environment art. was one to withdraw from. So I found myself uh, disappearing inside most of the time. I was an only child, and uh, if it was raining, I couldn't go out to play. They wouldn't let me out to play. And I couldn't have other kids in because my um, OCD mother wanted complete and utter control, and having another kid in the house might move something out of place, like a cushion or a... Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And then, so I couldn't have kids in the house to play with me, so I would just draw. I would draw or paint. Uh, this is this is pre playing a musical instrument. That happened around about the age of thirteen, fourteen. I started to play guitar, but um, I, I would always disappear into my own world. I would invent countries. I would invent languages. I would invent. Money. I would draw the money of these countries over the flags, the uniforms that the the police or the military or the national costume of the country. And you know, I would disappear into my own worlds because, as an only child and a um, you know one that was dissuaded from playing with a lot of kids because of my mother's OCD, um, I lived in a fantasy world. So by the time you did discover music, like you said, 13, 14 years old, and you, and you have this artistic curiosity and you are kind of you know, isolated in a lot of different ways and for a lot of different reasons, did, did music replace some of that or did it kind of work as, as, like a, as one part of a larger puzzle for you? I think it was part of a larger puzzle, but I also, and I know this sounds kind of weird, but I started to think of music as a way to escape where I was, a way to escape the council estate that we lived on. I mean, I don't know what the um, the American equivalent is, the projects, I guess. Right. Or a trailer park, or, you know, it's if you live on a council estate, you have no money. And my parents had no money. My father was in the Navy. My mother was a shop assistant, you know, uh, uh, worked in a, a, a newspaper shop and then a chemist, a pharmacist. And, um, so we had no money. And um, I, I, as I got to 13, 14, I really began to open up. I mean, puberty does amazing. It's like a chemical bomb going off in most people, you know. <laughs> And the, the chemical bomb of puberty for me was thinking, wow, you know what? Maybe I could get off of this estate, get away from my parents. Maybe I don't have to have a horrible factory job, which all the other kids are being pushed into. Maybe I can make something with music and um because the, the my kind of the idea i had previously about making a living with art was uh, when i went to art school in swindon i that idea quickly left me i didn't like where i was being pushed right. but i was discovering music more and more and i began to think more and more this is my passport out of this estate away from my parents, possibly out of poverty. And I know that, uh, you know, you'll catch more girls with a guitar than you will with a pencil. (laughs) And seriously, it was that banal. It was um, my father always, because he could kind of play half a dozen instruments, kind of okay, he always used to have this old battered Dutch acoustic guitar made by Egmond. Um, he, was, he used to keep that behind the sofa. And when he, uh, when I would be home, but he would be out at work or, you know, this was later when he'd quit the Navy, I would pull this guitar out from behind the sofa and kind of try and figure out some shapes and chords and lines and things. And um, it really, it was like a bug, you know, to me, this was, and, and I used to carry this guitar to school. Right. 
you know, like a kind of dressing gown cord as a guitar strap, you know, and I'd hang it around my neck and walk to school with it. And um, girls especially would come up and stroke this thing. <laughs> Like I had a baby monkey or a pony or something. They come up and stroke this guitar, and you could attract them. You didn't have to play anything. You just hung this this totem pole around your neck, and they'd come up and worship at the altar in the playground, you know? Yeah. So it was like, wow, this is great. I don't even have to... I don't even have to learn to play anything. They're, they're talking to me. They're talking about the guitar, and they seem to go into this weird kind of pop haze. I don't even have to make a noise. I, I, I never played a guitar. I, I played drums and, and badly, and I could never... Uh, difficult to carry to school. Very, I was going to say that very, almost impossible to carry to school. So that, di- yeah. that information did mean no good whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, a guitar, uh, that, you know, I left school at 15. I was considered a failure, but I, I instead of going on to sort of higher education where, you know, you'd go on higher education and then university, but I just wanted out of the whole school system. I really disliked it. And I had enough faith in my own growing abilities, and I begged my parents, please let me out of school, don't force me to carry on going to higher and higher schools, being older and older and still in school. You know, I had this horror vision of being 21, 22, still in learning somewhere. Right. And so I left at 15. Um, that was considered to be a failure. I was considered to be a failure by everybody. And... Uh, I, I loved it. I was away from that system. Let me out of that system. Now I can fiendishly plot what I'm going to do with the future. And by by the age of fifteen, you are already you are already being treated with Valium. And by that point, probably no. I was I was on Valium uh, somewhere between late twelve year old, early thirteen year old. Yeah. So you had been by the time you left school, you were already pretty well deep into this dependence oh, yeah. on Valium. Oh, yeah. I used to take my Valium to school in my, my glasses case, my spectacle case. Um, yeah, my, my mother was having mental problems. Uh, she was, um, you know, committed to a mental asylum twice, I think. I think it was twice. Um, and she had electrotherapy shock treatment and all that sort of thing. And... Um, I, I was obviously upset, and it was it was affecting me. I, I, I was reacting kind of over sensitively to to things, especially school. I really I was bullied quite a lot at school because I was just a skinny nerd, and all the big muscly jock types would bully you. You know, um, you know the you know the kind of thing. I, I don't. But, um, yeah, I was on from from twelve to thirteen. I was put on Valium and just left on it. And then I I think, you know, they'd try new variants out as they came up. But they never reviewed it. And I was still on Valium at the age of 26 when I was touring uh, until my first wife um, at the time decided without consulting anyone or without consulting me or certainly without consulting any doctors or specialists she was going to throw all my valium out knowing that it'd be difficult for me to get more in the middle of a big u.s tour you know right so yeah that was that was when the brain melt started i want to ask you about that because you, you talk about cutting you know valium out of your system cold turkey the more you read about the withdrawal symptoms of that kind of addiction especially someone who has had, you know, 10 years or more of that kind of thing. You're, you're, well, lucky. I, was, I was on Valium for 13 plus years. So, yeah. But the, uh, the, you do not just stop, you titrate it down, you know, smaller and smaller amounts and less and less, you know, days and stuff really, 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 really gradually. No, you don't just stop. For, I mean, say, yeah, well, it didn't do anything for me anyway. I didn't realize that my reality on Valium was going to be very different to my reality 
not on Valium. So for many people who cut it out, cold turkey, I mean, they run the risk of, of, of dying from the withdrawal. Which I, yeah, well, I didn't know any of this. Yeah, well, I, I I was very naive about. You see, I wasn't a recreational drug taker. I didn't smoke dope or drop acid or take speed or anything like that. I was um, mostly because the people I saw around me doing that, I thought, oh Jesus, you idiots! I hope I never get that stupid to talk like that. And you know, I just, I just. I didn't think it was cool. I just, uh, I'm f- kind of from the Zappa school of, they they just make themselves idiots, you know. But um, I, I was, without knowing it, I was very addicted to this um, everyday medication of Valium. And when I stopped it dead, it, it so much came unwound in my life. Um, I started thinking clearly about uh, touring, the whole album tour, album right. tour cycle. I started thinking clearly for the first time about why, after five years of nonstop touring, have I not seen a penny, not right. one red cent, nothing. And then uh, the- something is very rotten in the state of Denmark. I can tell you, you know. So I started to think clearly about stuff that. Other people may have taken for granted and, uh, and and thought about years before. I just kind of went along with the whole thing. Yeah, let me at the stage. Let me let me make a noise with my gang. Let me make records. Let me get f- apparently free beer in the dressing room. You know. Uh, but you do get little awakenings along the way. I remember jumping in with the band into a big stretch limo, arriving uh, uh, in New York one time, and um, and I was talking to the this uh, this driver in the front, and I said, "Whoa, the size of this limo! Wow, you know, we're literally from a council estate. We're we're poor kids. This is incredible. I wonder who's paying for this." And you know, he knew because he he picked up people all day, every day of his life. He just turned to me and said, "Well, you are, son." <laughs> and you know that that hit me like a brick across the side of the head. I thought, "Jesus, of course I am. Right. Of course we are." You know, that stopping stopping being in a thug in a in a fog of of. Um, remoteness from real life, I started to think deeply. I started to think, do I want to be doing this? Um, You know, I wanted to do this when I was 15. Do I want to be doing this? Now I'm 26, 27. Um, Do I want to be in a musical gang? Do I want to be touring and seeing no no reward for it? Who's getting all the money? We certainly aren't. And um, I think that this new clearer thinking that went hand in hand with the the actual negative effects of cold turkey. I was having panic attacks. I never knew what they were. Yeah. I was. My limbs were freezing up. I was getting big bouts of amnesia. Uh, so much so that I couldn't remember who I was. You know, I'd be in an American hotels and um, I'd go and look at the number on the door, my door at my room. Oh, four hundred and twenty or whatever it was. And I'd ring down reception and say with my politest upper class English accent, uh, excuse me, can you tell me who's in room four hundred and twenty? Well certainly that's Mr Partridge. Oh, okay. And you know, they'd tell me who I was. Wow. I, I would forget who I was. I would I would forget why what am I doing in this van? What am I doing in this airplane? You know, big and 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 literally, my limbs couldn't function. I couldn't get off the bed to go to sound checks. I'd have to, you know, instead of the phone ringing saying, "Hey, we're in reception. The bus is up and running. Come, let's go do the sound check." I'd be like half an hour trying to get off the bed because my body would be like frozen. I've seen the the video clip of that final show, and you, everything that you. Describe. Oh, the, you, the you, panic attacks were getting uh, the, the well, the French one. Yeah, I mean everything. Yeah, that did... was that was a big gig. That was a big gig physically. It was a live telecast at the same time, so it was going to be a hell of a lot of people were seeing that, and um, the panic attacks were getting like every gig now. 
And I, as I say, I never knew what panic attacks were. I'd never had any in my life. And suddenly I'm getting them all the time. And I, I think, why am, why am I going crazy? Am I sort of going down the Sid Barrett, Brian Wilson route, but without taking the drugs? Right. What's happening? And you, am I turning into a madman? You know, I, and nobody sat me down and said, that's a panic attack. And you're, and you're getting panic attacks because your life is out of control. It's going where you don't want it to go, and you don't have any control over it. But you're also in a you band, and you're also in a band with with Colin and Dave and 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 Terry at the time. And I'm yeah. sure they're watching you go through this, you know, this period, wondering, well, you know, what's going on with Andy? Then this Paris show happens, and you're you're off stage. I I, I would imagine that they had to be very very confused. But it sounded... I think they were immensely confused. And, you know, the French record label was saying, oh, you know, uh, this is a, a terrible shame, but, w- w- you know, you can still do tomorrow's gig and that's going to be televised as well. I said, no, I need to stop. You don't realize I need to stop. And they, nobody was listening to me. In fact, when we were, we were working on the English Settlement album, I, I took all the band aside one at a time and said, look, I, I'm sick of touring. I don't want to tour anymore. I want off of that circus. I really want to concentrate in what I think I'm good at, which is writing, and I want to learn how to record better and better records. And uh, completely to a man, they all said, you know, ah, you'll get over it. Don't worry. You wait. You get out there. You'll see that crowd. You'll hear the, the roar of the grease paint, you know, the smell of the crowd. You'll love it. So, um uh, nobody would listen to me. Management didn't want to listen to me because they were making big bucks. Uh, record company wanted us out there promoting those albums. Agents were making big bucks. Um, so uh, I, it was it was me against literally thousands of other financial interests. But you did wind up writing some of the best music of your career the moment well, you uh, left the only stage. Only because I, I just said, that's it, I am not touring anymore i i refuse to tour and when i refuse to tour uh i think my writing got better and better because i had more time I, I wasn't being thrown from one hotel to a jet to a to a bus to a dressing room to a gig and then the, that cycle the next day and so on um all that is great fun if you're like 18 but when you get in your late twenties, you start you start fantasizing about normal life. You think, wouldn't it be great to have a house instead of living in a hotel or living in a kind of scummy digs? Uh, wouldn't it be really good to have a kid or two? That'd be great. And um, I was I was longing for normality and longing to to take possession of my life. And uh, I think we made better records when we stopped the touring debacle. Because touring is not for everyone, and I, I found that out. And I especially found it out quickly and painfully when I became, uh, for want of another word, sober, uh, when I became unaffected by by drugs, yeah. by Valium. Yeah, the, the, the interesting part about it is that you know, I... I, I I just finished an interview with Chris Franz from a talking heads uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. He's got a brand new book out and, and, uh, he wrote in the book, a pretty good passage about XTC and about you guys and read the same thing with uh, the book that Andy Summers wrote a while back that, you know, you guys were a remarkably good, tight live band that in, that in, yeah, your... I didn't think so at the time, but you can't see that because you're inside, you're right in the, the eye of the hurricane. Right. You know, you, you just think, ah, oh, shit, somebody messed up the intro of that song, or, oh, that guitar's gone horribly out of tune, <laughs> uh, and you, you know, you're looking for imperfections, and you can't see the big effect, because you're, you don't know what shape the goldfish bowl is, because you're the goldfish. You know, if you were stood 50 yards back, and were looking at that goldfish bowl, you could see perfectly what shape it was, but right. you can't do that when you're inside it. And, and I think we were a, a great live band. I can see that now. I can see it. Uh, you know, people say, oh, we dug up this bit of film of you live. What do you think to this? You know, and I think, wow, that's really good. We're, 
We're blowing away the competition there, and anyone says that we aren't blowing them away, you are deaf and blind, you know? Well, that's and, and that's the thing. I mean, it, it, to, to combine the fact that you really were a, 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 a very good live band to the kind of music that you were writing, there wasn't anybody writing songs like you guys were, and, you know, rightly or wrongly, to have you guys lumped into that punk music umbrella, you know, was, was never an accurate description. You guys unlike a lot of punk bands at the time, you could actually play and you were writing songs that were complex. I mean, I, I remember the first time I got into XTC, I was in college and my, and my, my roommate had a bunch of albums, you know, drums and wires and black sea and, and English settlement. But I remember sitting in the room alone, I put on black sea and the, I don't know why this song was the one that kind of got into my head, but it was the, I could not stop singing. It was, Burning with Optimism's Flame. There's no, there is no song in the history of music that sounds like that. It's a totally unique song, and it's like that's when I discovered the greatness of 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 that band, and in particular the way you write music. That's the one that did it for me. Wow. Well, I I can tell you technically why it's a bit unusual. I mean, I'm singing in, I, I I'm. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm playing threes over a, f a, a drum rhythm in fours. Um, uh, I think I think that's the case. Hang on, it may be more complex than that. I don't know. I've never. It's kind of in two keys simultaneously. Um, it's kind of in in C um, and G simultaneously. It rocks. doesn't stand still and I'm singing you know it's like a waltz kind of time but the bass and drums are playing in fours they're not playing in threes so it, it collides um, in in many ways but just finding that chord or that, that, that rocking from one chord to the next there it made happiness and so that's why the song is about optimism, because it, it made, it's like pressing a, a big red button with happiness written on it, just just falling on that chord change. It's like, oh, that's happiness. And that's, like I said earlier, that's where the songs come from. You describe to yourself what you're hearing, and that becomes the lyric. This year is the 20th anniversary of, of Apple Venus, which... To me is uh, is is amazing that it, it's one it's it's been that long, but you know that album has got such complexity to it as well. I mean, there are songs on there. I mean, just you know, River of Orchids is one of these songs that just it just builds and builds and builds, and it's 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 like this relentless cornucopia of sound by the end of it that you just you know as, as the listener twenty years ago, I'm thinking, how in God's name did he think of this? And it's, um, it's I can remarkable. tell you, I, I, and, it, and it's got a very, uh, it's, it's kind of the sort of birth you describe it, and you go, is that it? Is that all it is? Is that, you're joking, isn't it more complex, isn't it more? Um, I, I, I knew I wanted to work with an orchestra, and I knew it was going to be expensive because orchestras are not cheap. Um, you know, if you want 40 or 50 people sat in that room playing your instructions, um, you that's going to cost a lot of money, and that's going to be an expensive room to sit in, and you've got to find an arranger who can you can describe your ideas to, and they've got to notate it down and so on. But the actual song was born. Um, I got hold of um, uh, a, a thing called... Um, an emu, which was uh, like a sampler device that had a lot of orchestral sounds in it. And I was getting into sequencing. Because I, I, my keyboard playing is so primitive, I literally have to play one note or one chord at a time. And, uh, and a sequencer captures what you, what you do right. and assigns where your fingers are pressing the keys to whatever sound you tell that to be. So you can you can make a pattern of, you know, A, B, C, 
keys on on the on the keyboard, and then you can tell uh, you know all the A's to be a, a, a viola, all the B's to be a, a violin, all the C's to be a cello, and and so on. You can so what it does is it remembers what gets kind of punched into it. But whereas keyboard players can sit and ripple out the stuff, I have to do it one note at a time. Uh, the story about the cardboard hand is totally true. I don't know. Do you know that story? I don't know if I do. Oh, um, before I got into sequencing, I uh, my keyboard playing very naive, and <laughs> I would sit and and look for a chord you know, and no, that's not a good note. That's not good. That doesn't sound good with that one. Oh, that one sounds a bit better. And then what I would do is, like, hold the shape with my hand, like my hand had been frozen. I'd hold the shape of the chord I like the sound of, and then I'd draw around it onto a piece of card. And I'd cut that card out, and I'd write on it something like first chord. And, and then I'd find the next chord in the song and go through the same process again, draw around my hand on a, a piece of card and the right second chord and, and so on. So that's how I, uh, not being a music writer, that was how I remembered what notes made up the chords of the song on a keyboard. Wow. Um, and uh, but when I got into uh, owning a sequencer, that kind of does that electronically for you. But what I, what I did is I found a pattern which I assigned uh, uh, this bum 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 bum, and as I was building it up, it was. All I did it all with um, what they call strings played pizzicato, which means instead of bowing a string with a bow and making a long sound, you pluck it and it makes a short sound. Yep. And in my head, that was the sound of water or raindrops. And so I made this pattern with this all these dripping raindrops sounds of pizzicato strings and I just let the pattern go round and round and round playing around and round you know literally for hours I was so excited I thought wow what have I found here I've and I started to describe to myself well it's rain rain making flowers grow where would it be great if flowers grew and I started looking through a notebook I had and I'd written the phrase dandelions roar in Piccadilly Circus and um, it didn't make any sense because there are no dandelions in Piccadilly Circus it's a it's a sort of a motorway area in London you know a big kind of car junction like Times Square or something and um, uh, but I like the idea of a circus and there are lions in it but they're not lions they're dandelions you know like the weed and and I thought that phrase I heard the dandy lions roar in Piccadilly Circus. That's it. I'm going to base the whole thing around that. And so it, it, uh, I'm describing to myself the lyrics. I'm describing about orchids and wouldn't it be great if there was no traffic in Piccadilly Circus? And <laughs> so you know, there it, it it grows from self description. Yeah. You're describing the scene of the crime to yourself. So. Uh, it- Two things. Uh, one, I I, I want to be the only guy that doesn't ask you any questions about Todd Rundgren. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can if you like. I'm completely fine with it. Seriously, um, and I and I've I've got an, an interesting uh, I've got an interesting answer for you. But but go ahead if you want to. Well, so the the stories of Todd Rundgren and and Skylarking and the relationship that uh, you guys had or did not have. For the right. for the fan who who has observed this uh, this this dynamic over the last you know thirty years or so, at the end mm. of the day, Skylarking is such a brilliant record that you know in spite of what may have happened between you and 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 Todd Rundgren, there's to me it's it, it's undeniable at that time the most mature, full, complete record. I felt that you guys had put together. Well, I think he did a, a, an excellent job sequencing it. 
and I know exactly where he comes from uh, for that reason. He's also a huge Anglophile, so he loves the Beatles, he loves English music. Um, and I think as an arranger, that that is his major skill. He's a fantastic arranger. His production skills are difficult to live with. Um, his engineering skills are medium to sloppy. But his production, if you want to know what he's like to work with as a producer, go and interview Joey Molland from Badfinger. Okay. He will tell you exactly all the same stories that I've told about Todd Rundgren. How he enjoys belittling the artists he's producing. He likes to break you down so you will obey him and the production can get on quicker and get it over with so he can move on to the next money-making thing. Um, But talk talk to Joey Molland, talk to Sparks, talk Mm. to the band, um, Talk, talk to, um, when I mean the band, I mean Bob Dylan's the band, the Hawks. Right. Um, talk to uh, Patti Smith. Um, talk to literally anyone that's worked with him, and they will have the same stories about his personality. I mean, even B.B. Buell, who was like his his love life for a while, she said, you know, Todd's the sort of, guy that knows how to take a computer apart, put it back together so it works more efficiently, but he has zero people skills. And um, they will, all all the people, or or a lot of the people that work with Todd will tell you the same stories. Reading a Joey Molland interview quite recently, um, I was sat there, because I do most of my reading in the bath or on the toilet, you know, that's why the magazine (laughs) basket is in there. And, and I started reading this interview thinking, no, no, he didn't. The bastard, he did that with us as well. No! You know, and um, so I, I think he has a way of being. It's just his personality. And and um, I, I didn't like, I guess I felt that I was being crushed by Virgin, who wanted U.S. hits. And I was being obliged to shut up and not have any input in my own songs, which felt terrible to me because my songs are my babies. And to tell me how to have my babies and how they're going to be torn out and thrown against that wall, uh, no, 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 no. These babies are going to be pulled out lovingly. They're going to be laid in that little cot there and they're be given every great start in life. You know, they're not going to be torn out and just, oh, that'll do, that's fine. You know, no, 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 it's not sounding right. Let's get it to sound right. No, we don't have time. Forget it. You know, most of the arguments were it was difficult for me to relinquish control of my songs. And that came up against Todd's way. Like I say, you just go and interview any of those people. Joey Molland will tell you what he's like. Well, I'm glad I avoid asking you those questions then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I could be vicious, but it's kind of pointless. No, I, I, I could really say a lot of nasty shit that, and and you'd say, no, you're just being, that's just bad blood. And no, it would all be true. Um, well, but I'm like not- I say, you, you go and interview other people that have worked with him, and you'll find many of the same stories coming out. Well, I'm I'm a much bigger Andy Partridge fan than a Todd Rundgren fan, so if it, if it's a if it's a matter of choosing between who I would want to believe, I'm going to wind up believing you anyways. Well, like I say, just go and interview the other people. You don't if don't take it from me. Go and interview the others. You know, go and talk to those people, and and then when they all end up telling you the same or extremely similar stories, you'll have to come to a conclusion. In the Rolling Stone article that you that we talked about at the very very beginning, it it mentioned that uh, as far as new Andy Partridge music, they talked about a collection that you were thinking about as far as you know songs that had been rejected. Having listened to the Fuzzy Warbles collection, uh, or having bought all eight CDs, because that's that's just what I do. Where are you in terms of giving us something new? Um, 
Well, I mean, the last new new thing was uh, the Planet England EP with Robin Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Right. I don't know if you've heard that. Got it. Already got it. And I loved it. Oh, good man. Absolutely. Um, and enjoyed doing that. In fact, we're going to do some more. We've started already, but uh, the virus um, put all that put all that on ice. Um, so yeah, we're we're going to be working more together. Um, what happened with the? Um, I, I feel as I have to clear the decks because when XTC wound down. Um, and I don't want to go into that because I don't want to say negative things about Colin at all, but Colin and I found that we couldn't work together, really. Uh, it had been too long, and we'd been through too much, and right. we'd kind of achieved, you know, XTC was not one person. It was it was everybody's input, you know. And every time somebody left the band or wanted to go and do something different or whatever, it, it changed the nature of XTC, which is which is fine, but it's not the purest essence of the first. You know, it, it's it's a constantly changing thing. I'm tying myself up in Nazi. I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> but uh, what happened is when XTC fell apart, I thought I can write songs. I'm going to write for other people, and publishing companies would ask me, "Oh, have you got a song so and so and so and so can do?" Because uh, they want songs in the style of, or they want to, they want some songs that sound a bit like McCartney could have written them. Or can you do songs, that are some real stomping songs that have a kind of a early seventies sort of feel? Or can you can you write a ballad or a Christmas song or whatever it is? You know, you're you're a songwriter for hire, so you you have to put the outfit on you have to pretend it's a bit like being the dukes of stratosphere but that was that was us really you know doing uh saying thank you to, to to late 60s bands but when you're a songwriter for hire you um you're expect you're expected to pull out of a hat songs in the style of please so what i would do is if i knew i was working with somebody i would write maybe half a dozen songs and, uh, you know, get them these rough demos and chances are they'd be a bit weird for them and they'd say, no, thanks, don't like any of those. Or, uh, yeah, I quite like that one. I'm going to do that one. But the other 10 in the bag that you sent, uh, no, I don't think I'm going to do those. And so what I found my, what was happening is I found myself with more and more and more songs that were not being covered uh, and were being rejected. And I couldn't call me stupid, but I couldn't figure why these songs were not being done when I thought maybe the song they did choose of mine was one of the weaker ones, or they would, instead of any of mine, they would choose something by another writer. And then I thought, God, all the ones of mine you've rejected, I can say hand on heart are better than that one you've chosen to do by... Uh, uh, uh. So I found myself with a lot of half-formed or three-quarters-formed or fully formed songs that were written for a purpose. It's not it's not me writing for me. It's me writing in the style of. Right. Well, but I think a lot of them are pretty damn good. And um I mean one of the rejects uh when the monkeys asked me um could I write a, a Christmas song? I they, they already asked me, would I write a song for their sort of Get Back Together record, um, Good Times? And they said, you know, a year or so later, it was Andy, can you write a Christmas song? And I thought, well, I can. And I, I came up with about seven or so things. And the one they picked to go with, they, they wanted to do more. The, the, the producer, the late um, Adam Schlesinger, said that they would have done more of my songs, but politics within the band and stuff mm. meant they could only do mm. one. Uh, so they they did um, a song called uh, Unwrap Your Christmas, which was actually not written for the Monkeys. It was written way back, you know, years before, and offered uh, offered to a female artist who wanted some Christmas songs in the style of Phil Spector. 
And so I, I got this Phil Spector-esque demo together. I got my daughter, Holly, to sing it, and we pitched it in a female key. Um, but I, I offered that song to all that song uh, specifically to all sorts of people who turned it down. Yeah. But I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I thought it was a really good song. So yeah, I've, I've considered doing a series of records, tentatively titled "My Failed Songwriting Career," <laughs> where I will finish up and polish the demos of the better songs. Um, and get them out because I I think until I get all this furniture out of my brain, I can't think about where to go new. If you know what I mean, right? Well, it, when it comes out, you can guarantee you'll get. If you charge me a thousand, if you charge me a thousand dollars to buy it, I'll probably find some way to sell some furniture and uh, my own <laughs> and buy it. No, so. no, don't worry. It's it's <laughs> you know I'm a. I speak as a fan. The bands I'm a fan of or the artists I'm a fan of, I I like value for money and I I, I want to get everything they did, you know, and uh but but you can see sometimes that that it's just what you're being charged is off the scale, you know. I like the Beatles, but I wouldn't buy any of those remix box sets and the weird thing is people have bought them for me over the years as Christmas presents or birthday presents. Um, but I've never bought any for myself because they're just too damn expensive. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Andy, listen, it's, I, I, I know I've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate, uh, finally getting around to, to, to doing the interview. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thanks. I hope you can use plenty of that. And, um, if there's anything that, uh, that you, you feel you didn't cover that you really want to cover or, you know, any other questions or damn it, some other, another interview down the road sometime, um, just get in touch and, uh, Hick will plug me in and we can do something similar. That would be great. I would love to do it. Thank you so much, Andy. Hey, thanks Mike. That was a good interview. Well, that's it. Today has been the very greatest day of my life. If I die today, then I will have completed everything in my bucket list from now until the end of time. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can email me at backs at rock102.com. Let me know what you think, and thanks for listening to Backseat Musical Podcast.